The fourth case for argument is 22-1315 from the District of Minnesota, Raymond Kvalvog et al. versus Park Christian School et al. Your Honors, good afternoon. Opposing counsel, good afternoon. May it please the court. The case that Kvalbach's brought before the district court was dismissed with prejudice primarily because the district court found that there was an inseparable bar to relief, and that would be collateral estoppel. Uh, I'm not waiving any of my other issues that are discussed in my brief, but that's what I'm going to focus on this afternoon because it did result in that prejudicial uh, uh, dismissal, and it basically finished the case. Collateral estoppel requires that the issues argued in the district court, and in this case, just for background, Your Honors, uh, it's in my brief, but there was a wrongful death negligence case argued in the state of Minnesota trial court uh, by another attorney, and another attorney, Ken White, brought a post-trial Rule 60 motion before the trial court alleging that a state patrol officer, Sergeant Rod Eichens, had a bias and a conflict of interest involved in the case, and he sought a new trial. The state court denied that. When we went to the U.S. District Court, uh, Judge Tostrud uh, analyzed the issue of collateral estoppel because a motion to dismiss was brought by the defendants. For collateral estoppel to apply, the issues must be identical between the state trial court and between the U.S. District Court. The parties against whom estoppel is sought must be the same in the state court or be in privity with parties in the state court. There must be a final adjudication on the merits that went to judgment, and there must be a full and fair opportunity to litigate the issues. Now, I think it's important to emphasize that collateral estoppel is not a doctrine that's going to be applied rigidly. And we cited in our brief uh, Brown versus Felsen, and I understand that's a res judicata case, but it is part of the same family of doctrines, uh, collateral estoppel being a subdoctrine of res judicata, in which the Supreme Court said that we have to be careful in applying res judicata because it blocks unexplored paths to the truth. And that's exactly what we've got here. If we apply collateral estoppel here, it would unfairly block a path to the truth that the Kvalvogs were pursuing because in the Rule 60 process, they pursued a bias and conflict of interest and not a conspiracy case. Now, I understand that the defendants have claimed that the issues here are identical and that has been really peppered throughout their briefs on appeal. Uh, Mr. Lee raised the issue of conspiracy 52 times, and uh, Park Christian School and the defendants, Mr. Melamo and Hannestad, 98 times, and tried to say that the legal issue was the same in state court as it is in federal court. That is not the case. What was argued by Mr. White before the trial court in Minnesota was a bias and a conflict of interest, and not a conspiracy. This is a conspiracy on the federal level. The difference being a bias and conflict of interest on the part of Sergeant Eichens can be unilateral. We alleged that he had violated the general orders of the state patrol in not reporting a conflict of interest and bias. He was uh, close friends with uh, Chris Nellermo, who was the principal at the school at the time. Mr. Nellermo contested that in the state court, but has now admitted that they were family friends. In a November 21 
November 2021 deposition, he said that they were actually family friends. They referred to each other in a messaging, text messaging by their first names. Mr. Nelamo gave his personal cell phone number to Sergeant Ishams, and the two of them discussed not only criminal charges against a third party, one of the defendants here, Coach Josh Lee, but also discussed the crash investigation. Now, the, uh, Counsel, yes. what about the rulings on the Rule 60 motion in state court that um, that the that the information, the, 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 the statements, the affidavits presented were not credible and would not have changed the minds of or the outcome of the jury? There was no no real likelihood of that. Does that get to the, the substance of what you're trying to say here in federal court? Um, no, Your Honor, because that's just talking about Sergeant Ishans alone and what his feelings were on the case. Now, although uh, you know the, the district court decided that this would not have a, an outcome or a, an effect on the jury, we were dealing with a Rule 60 uh, process at that point in time. The judge said basically that this was at most impeachment evidence, and I believe that Judge Lawson's comments was that she didn't believe this was very good impeachment evidence at the most. There's a lot more that we have alleged in terms of the conspiracy itself, which uh, goes well beyond what was discussed in the bias and conflict of interest issue. So I think uh, the state court was very superficial in terms of what uh, they were asked to deal with. And Judge Lawson, and you know, we'll concede that uh, both the trial court and the appeals court uh, mentioned the issue of conspiracy. They said the word conspiracy. But when you look at the record, the initial motion and the memorandum that were filed by Mr. White didn't mention conspiracy. He never mentioned it in the transcript before the trial court. That was raised by the defendants. And when I read the defendant's brief, I read the word conspiracy without any kind of analysis. There was no discussion of an unlawful goal to be achieved through unlawful or lawful means, no meeting of the minds, no plan, nothing. And it was just focused on Sergeant Ishans and his bias and conflict of interest. So the fact that that word came out was brought out by the defendants, and the way I see it is they used it in the non-legal vernacular uh, when you're talking about, you know, Area 51 conspiracists or uh, Kennedy assassin, assassination conspiracy theorists. That's the right, sort of thing. The, the, your claims, though, you don't have just a conspiracy claim here. So are you are you representing that only the conspiracy claim survives the collateral estoppel analysis, or are you also scooping in the Section 1983 claim against the sergeant? Well, I think it's much broader than that, because the 1983 action, Your Honor, in the complaint, I think, uh, I can't remember what exact paragraph it is, but in each count, we said that we restated all the facts and the law before that. So the conspiracy is actually part of the 1983 as well, even though we focus on Sergeant Ishans himself, and not just his unilateral feelings regarding the case, but his interactions with this broader web of people going well beyond him himself. Uh, and that's just based upon the theories and the formulations that we had based on evidence that we saw, which wasn't done in the trial court because we simply didn't have a feeling at that point in time that there was something conspiratorial going on here, more than seeing that blatant black letter uh, violation of the Minnesota General Orders of the State Patrol. I would offer you, Honor, that not only has it got to be the same issue, it's got to be necessary to the judgment. 
Well, in this case, if we're not, if the plaintiffs never raised the issue of conspiracy and it was raised simply as an offhand use of the word conspiracy without any analysis by the defendants, which was then parroted by the court, the court really was asked to decide bias and conflict of interest. And that's what Judge Lawson was looking at. Whether she mentioned conspiracy or not, she never went through any analysis, so it definitely wasn't necessary to the judgment in that case because she never actually reached a legal analysis of that. There must also be, uh, Your Honors, an adjudication on the merits of the issue of a conspiracy, the legal issue, and there simply was not here. And one of the cases cited in briefs by Mr. Lee is Mack versus Wells Concrete Product Company. And in that case, it's a workers' comp case, and they discussed how uh, the injury, uh, the liability of an employer for an injury to an employee is ongoing, that injury can be ongoing, and they found that you can bring the uh, case, even though the facts look the same. And in that case, uh, the worker had claimed that he had a certain disorder and that he had a pain-blocking mechanism in, uh, installed in himself. He brought that claim again later, and it was able to survive collateral estoppel because of the issue, the ongoing nature of that injury. This is pretty much the same. We allege that this conspiracy is still going on to this day. We have con continuously been stonewalled in terms of even trying to determine the truth, which is really what my clients wanted in this case. They just want the truth, and they can't get to it. And that door has been continuously shut on them. We have had, since the decision by Judge Lawson, we've had another case, Morton versus Park Christian School, in the District of Minnesota, where they deposed various people, including Principal Nellomo, Mr. Lee, uh, Mr. Lee admitted that he has $1.8 million in insurance, never revealed it to my clients, and was portrayed as this poor, beat-up-on uh, coach that was uh, being victimized when, in fact, he had an insurance policy. He was even asked, why didn't you reveal this by Jimmy Morton's attorneys? And he said, I don't know, didn't reveal it. Uh, Mr. Nellimo, who allowed his attorneys to go before Judge Lawson and say that it was basically a sporadic relationship, that they were uh, sporadic contacts with Mr. Eichens, and downplayed the family friends role, now says they were family friends, says that they were talking back and forth. The interesting thing about Mr. Nellimo is every time he says something, something else is revealed. We know, as part of the Jimmy Morton case, that a Snapchat message was provided in evidence that was never provided to my clients of a conversation between Sergeant Eichens and Mr. Nellimo. And it was Sergeant Eichens saying that he had thought about an issue of evidence they talked about, and Mr. Nellimo should talk to his lawyer about it. Now Mr. Nellimo says, yes, we were discussing a criminal investigation regarding Mr. Lee. Well, we know that's not true, and I raised in my letter to the court for reconsideration that the criminal investigation wrapped up in November. The Snapchat message was December 31st. So then Mr. Nellimo says, well, it was really about the crash investigation. No, it was not, because the crash investigation wrapped up in early October of 2015, and the Snapchat is on December 31st. They were talking about something completely different about this case. We know it's related to the case because it was disclosed in Jimmy Morton's case, and he had specifically... Counsel, can I, can I just... 
Can I just ask a question so I sure. make sure I put your argument in context? Are you now arguing um, in support that the alternative that if you get past collateral estoppel, that you have claims that have been sufficiently alleged? Uh, yes, we do believe that we've got claims that are sufficiently alleged. I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand the, the factual argument that you're making, where I should slot that into your argument. Right. And, of course, the, and I'll address, the, address that a little further, Yona, because what we discussed before Judge Tostrud was that if there was complaints regarding the way I've worded the 1983 or the 1985, that that's properly the, the subject of a 12E and that he should treat it as that. We did discuss that, but in Judge Tostrud's defense, he decided collateral estoppel applied, so it really wouldn't have mattered what kind of changes I made to the 1983 or the 1985. In this case, I'm saying collateral estoppel does not apply, and that therefore Judge Tostrud should be able to then entertain amendments to the complaint if there's some issue regarding how the 1983 was worded, the wording of the, the rights. Uh, Judge Tostrud actually cited to two Seventh Circuit cases where they talked about uh, corruption of a civil proceeding and whether or not this person had a right to a civil proceeding non-corrupted by politics. So um, it looks like that's about as far as I'm going to get, Your Honor, but I would say that really what the defendants are asking is that they're asking us at this point that we be foreclosed from litigating a stealthily concealed conspiracy based on a by-chance discovery of a bias and conflict of interest. It's not much of a conspiracy if they reveal it. And bias and conflict of interest, yes. We could have possibly discovered some of the social media stuff during the trial, but, but the conspiracy was concealed, and it's still concealed to this day. We still don't know what that Snapchat was about. Thank you, Anders. Thank you, Counsel. Good afternoon, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. Anna Veit Carter, Assistant Attorney General, appearing on behalf of Sergeant Rodney Eichens and Colonel Matthew Langer of the Minnesota State Patrol. There is no dispute that the car accident that claimed the lives of appellant's sons was a tragedy, but appellants have already had their day in court to litigate the circumstances surrounding that accident and to also litigate the circumstance or the allegations um, against Sergeant Eichens and the other appellees that they raise as the basis for their federal claims. Accordingly, we ask this court to affirm on the matter of collateral estoppel. Counsel for Park Christian will address the merits of the 1985 conspiracy claim. But before I get to collateral estoppel, I would just like to briefly address the qualified immunity argument because I believe it provides an alternative basis for the court to affirm dismissal. Here, qualified immunity of Sergeant Eichens and Colonel Langer bar appellant's claims for two reasons. First, appellants have not established a constitutional violation. Although they reference repeatedly First Amendment right to um, petition and substantive and procedural due process, they do not actually allege facts that support a constitutional violation of any of those rights. And regarding parental rights, um, although those are included thoroughly in their brief, none of the case law that they cite support parental rights as an independent basis for a Section 1983 claim. And secondly, appellants have cited no case law demonstrating that these rights were clearly established, which is required to bar qualified immunity. 
So that provides the first basis for this court to affirm. Secondly, on the issue of collateral estoppel, all of the elements are met here. Counsel, would you address the, I, I, your, I'm sorry, go ahead, Judge Kelly. No, no that's right. Go ahead, Judge Kovas. <laughs> would you address uh, your colleague's suggestion that conspiracy uh, is distinct from the bias uh, question and that bias may have been addressed uh, below? but that conspiracy was really not addressed by the state courts. I, I disagree, and I think the court's order shows that, that it addressed not just bias and the alleged corruption of not withdrawing pursuant to the policy, but also conspiracy and whether... Can plaintiff argue conspiracy below, or is that something that, that the defendants below interjected into it and the court picked up on? Um, it I, does that matter? I... I think counsel is right that that is the accurate record, but I do not think that matters. Because ultimately what matters is the court's decision and what the court considered. And the district court below specifically found, quote, there is nothing to suggest that there was a concerted effort on the part of Sergeant Eichens to taint the entirety of the investigation in favor of PCS. And the court also specifically found that there is no merit in plaintiff's assertion that Sergeant Eichens deliberately withheld information as part of a conspiracy to rob plaintiffs of a fair trial. I think it's immaterial that the court didn't lay out the specific elements of conspiracy. It, it made that finding on the conspiracy issue. I have a follow-up question on um, this Rule 60.02 motion. As I read the, the the state court's order, well, as I understand it, for on a to get a new trial, they had to prove that or had to show or establish that their newly discovered evidence was in fact newly discovered and that they could not have gotten that with due diligence before trial. Is that your understanding of a Rule 60.02? That is one of the elements that they had to prove, correct. And, and if they didn't prove that, they couldn't get any further. Is that also accurate under Minnesota law? Yes, but the district court, so, oh, sorry. Yeah, so if that's true, um, and that that's the first thing that the, the district court rules on, was any of the rest of it necessary? Uh, and so I'm getting at to, I think under Minnesota law, it has to, the, the ruling has to be necessary and essential to the judgment. And I'm just wondering if given the nature of, of, of a motion for a new trial, whether any of this discussion um, about what the sergeant did or didn't do was necessary and essential to a motion for a new trial based on uh, newly discovered evidence when it found it was not in fact newly discovered under the rule. Well, it must meet all three of those prongs, and the court found that it didn't meet two of them. So it's newly discovered evidence. It must be relevant and admissible, which it found that it was. And then the third piece is that it must have a probable effect upon the result of the new trial. So yeah, and I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just want to make sure I'm, we're talking about the same rule. Do Am I wrong to say that just out of the gate they have to show that they could not have discovered it by by way of reasonable diligence prior to, to trial? Like, if the district court said, look, you could have found that before trial, it doesn't matter what it is. Is that a, is that a gatekeeper, that initial ruling? I, I don't believe so. Um, and I, I think that so what, still... What, 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 what work is that doing, then, in the rule? It's, it's going to the... Um, whether or not it would have had a probable effect on the result of a new trial. Um, hypothetically, the Court of Appeals could have found that they couldn't have found it 
through reasonable diligence. So I think that just the state trial court's finding on that other element is relevant and necessary to its final judgment. Um, uh, additionally, appellants had a full and fair opportunity to litigate their conspiracy allegations at the court below. Um, they were subject to substantive briefing before the state trial court and the court of appeals. Um, their argument is primarily that they weren't allowed discovery on that issue because it was a post-trial circumstance, but they cite no case law for that for that contention. Um, do, and this do, you need, do you need case law for that contention? I mean, if you're... If you're in a motion for a new trial, you're really just trying to get back into trial. You're not really trying to prove up whether it's a conspiracy or, you know, false documents, whatever the allegation is. All you're trying to do is get back in, right? Yes, essentially. But here there's case law directly to the contrary from this court that shows that discovery is not necessary for a full and final or full and fair opportunity to litigate. And that's this court's opinion in Irving v. Dormier, um, 586 F3 645. And then finally, um, application of collateral estoppel here does not infringe on their due process rights. Um, they failed to raise this argument below, and therefore it is waived, but additionally collateral estoppel and the elements specifically incorporate concerns of due process. So we believe that qualified immunity and collateral estoppel provide separate ways for the court to affirm the district court's motion, or district court's order, and unless the court has any further questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Counsel? May it please the court, Mr. Chapman. Uh, my name is Matt Murphy on behalf of the Appellees Park Christian School, Christopher Nellermo, and Kent Hennestad. And we would join in the arguments of the state defendants as it relates to collateral estoppel. I do want to focus my time today on the alternative basis for dismissal, that is the appellant's failure to plead a claim of civil conspiracy. But before I do, uh, Judge Kelly, I'd like to address the question you were just asking, Mrs. Veet Carter, about the necessary and essential element. And the way that I think about that element is that it's there to ensure that the uh, litigant has an opportunity to appeal the issue. If it's not necessary and essential to the judgment, there's no opportunity to appeal. In this case, they did appeal the Rule 60 motion, and the Court of Appeals did address the arguments as to whether or not it had any effect on the outcome of the trial or whether it, it precluded them from getting a, essentially a fair trial. And that's the exact issue that's in play here. And so I, I think I understand your question. Um, but the end result is that they were able to appeal that decision, and the Court of Appeals decided it on the merits. <clears throat> Turning to the um, question of whether or not the appellants, the appell appellants have um, stated a claim for civil conspiracy. As this Court explained in Harrison versus Springdale, sewer and water, an allegation of class-based invidiously discriminatory animus is required to state a claim under the second clause of Section 1985-2. As the Harrison Court explained, a contrary construction would present serious constitutional problems by creating a general federal tort law against private tortious conspiracy. The appellants here, like the appellants in Harrison, have not alleged they were, that they were members of a protected class, let alone that the appellee's conduct towards them was motivated by a class-based invidiously discriminatory animus. Rather, the appellants who are white 
specifically alleged that the conspiracy was motivated by a desire to absolve Park Christian School from liability for the deaths of their sons. In other words, the complaint specifically alleges that the motive behind the supposed conspiracy was Park Christian School's self-interest, not animus towards a class of persons. Now, other allegations in the complaint, which the appellants now contend, could support an inference that the conspiracy was motivated by the appellee's dislike for them because, one, they were not good enough Christians, or two, because they paid tuition for certain minority students to attend Park Christian School, are insufficient. First, the Supreme Court has never expanded the reach of Section 1985-2 or Subdivision 3 beyond conspiracies based on racial discrimination. It's true that in 1971, the Supreme Court, in the case of Griffin versus Breckenridge, stated that the equal protection language found in Section 1985-2 and in 3 um, means that there must be some racial or perhaps otherwise class-based invidiously discriminatory animus. Since then, however, it has never held that either sections reach conspiracies motivated by anything other than race discrimination. In the United States uh, Brotherhood versus Scott, the Supreme Court stated that without any evidence of congressional intent, it would not say that the statute goes beyond its central concern, which was combating the violent efforts of the Ku Klux Klan in the Reconstruction era to resist and frustrate the intended effects of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. This was, after all, originally called the Ku Klux Klan Act. In Bray versus Alexandria Women's Health Clinic, the Supreme Court said that whatever may be a precise meaning of class for purposes of Griffin's speculative extension of Section 1985 beyond race, the term unquestionably connotes something more than a group of defendants, a group of um, individuals who share a desire to engage in conduct that the defendants disfavor. Rather, as numerous circuit courts have said since Scott, which this court has cited with approval, a protected class under Section 1985 must possess immutable characteristics such as race, national origin, or gender that are traditionally part and parcel of discrete and insular minorities. Here, the appellants have not alleged that they are members of a class of people historically discriminated against based on some immutable characteristic. Rather, they allege personal animus towards them based on their perceived lack of religious fervor. Lacking religious fervor is not a distinctive and identifiable trait. It's not a group. They share no objective, immutable characteristic. Indeed, membership in this uh, purported class is necessarily subjective. The arguments that they are financial supporters of minority students of color and therefore protected by the statute is also misplaced. First, the court in Scott explicitly stated that Section 1985 does not reach conspiracies motivated by bias towards others on account of their economic activities. Second, the second clause of 1985-2 makes clear that supporters of racial minorities are only protected against conspiracies to injure them because of their efforts to enforce equal protection rights of racial minorities. Receiving assistance to attend a private high school um, from a private citizen is not a constitutional right, and so the appellant's financial assistance is not the sort of minority support Section 1985 is intended to protect. Finally, and very briefly, the appellants have not alleged that the conspirators shared an animus towards them because of, any, uh, because of their lack of faith or their paying for students to uh, attend the school. Indeed, the complaint does not allege anywhere that either Mr. Lee or Sergeant Aishans had any animus towards them whatsoever. There could therefore be no shared discriminatory purpose 
by and amongst the co-conspirators, which is fatal to the claim. Thank you. Thank you. I think we have uh, one more appellee lawyer. Uh, it's a bit of time. Your your colleagues took up a lot of your time, but uh, you got a minute thirty-five. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, may it please the court and counsel, I will be brief. I appear today on behalf of appellee Josh Lee and join in the arguments of uh, attorneys Vite Carter and Murphy with regard to collateral estoppel and with regard to the legal deficiencies and shortcomings in the 1985 claim against Mr. Lee. I'm going to address the merits of the claim against Mr. Lee specifically. As counsel just indicated, there is nothing in uh, appellant's complaint that makes any allegation that Mr. Lee had any animus toward the Qualvogs, race, religious, or otherwise. Similarly, there is no allegation in appellant's complaint that Mr. Lee had any conspiracy meeting of the minds with any of the other appellees that are involved in this case. Um, appellants are required to present a complaint with enough facts to state a claim. Uh, they have not done that. The failure to include those allegations against Mr. Lee defeats appellant's singular claim against him. There was one claim against Mr. Lee, and that was the 1985 claim. All elements of collateral estoppel are met as it concerns Mr. Lee. Um, with regard to the 6002, I, I wanted to address also that there were affidavits considered. In all of the allegations concerning Mr. Lee, as outlined by the appellants, concern his pre- and post-accident conduct and also some conduct that was addressed in the affidavits filed that were considered by the state district court in the 6002 motion. Mr. Lee respectfully requests the court affirm the district court's dismissal with prejudice of the 1985 claim against Mr. Lee. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. You, you three div divided that up very well. <laughs> Thank you, Your Honors. The first thing I wanted to do was address Ms. Carter's uh, uh, citation to Irving versus Dormeyer. That was a slept on his rights case. That was a case where a prisoner had a habeas and he felt that he was denied access to the evidence and he simply didn't pursue it. He didn't pursue it on appeal and his Rule 60 was dismissed. So uh, the court in Fofana versus Mayorkas did state that Irving does not establish that an issue is actually litigated, whereas here it was neither raised by the parties nor mentioned by the court in the first proceeding. So Irving versus Dormeyer doesn't deal with our conspiracy issue, uh, and it's really not a case that's on point in terms of our particular issues. In terms of qualified immunity, I really can't believe that the state patrol and the state government would stand before a court and say that it's not an established right that a person has a right to a fair trial in a civil proceeding and that an officer can conspire with other individuals to uh, alter the ends of that proceeding, which is exactly what we're arguing in this case. I would also point out that Mr. Lee, although not specifically stated on count two, He's part of the conspiracy. The conspiracy is restated in count two, and under 1983, non-government actors can be held liable, along with that government officer, if there's a conspiracy that satisfies 1983. So although it focuses, I see my time is up, Your Honor. Uh, can I conclude quickly? Although it focuses on Sergeant Aishans, all of the defendants are implicated in count two as well. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to all counsel here today on this case. Uh, we appreciate your argument and your briefing, and we'll take the matter under advisement.